This is a talk by Matt Saradsky titled Matt's Awakening, recorded April 28, 2010, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Joel. We're here to introduce Matt tonight. He's going to tell us about his awakening, and then you're going to have a chance to ask him some questions. But I want to say a few words to start us off. First of all, Matt came to me on retreat last fall and told me about an awakening he had about a week before. Just a couple days before. Just a couple days before. And so I thought that was very interesting. And from his description, I was convinced that he had a uh, at least a genuine Gnostic flash, and it was very um, good to come on this retreat. This retreat was a retreat about transforming afflicted emotions, which is actually, in the traditional Tibetan view of things, given only after someone has had what they call an introduction to the nature of mind, or a Gnostic flash. So it was a perfect retreat for him to come on. And then we talked a little bit later, and as my custom has developed, I advised him to wait about six months before he spoke to anybody or said anything, just to see what would happen. Sometimes a Gnostic flash doesn't last very long. Sometimes it can turn into a Gnostic episode. It can last quite a while. And as I've learned over the years, it actually can last more than six months. Uh, So that's not a guarantee, but six months seems to be a generally a good time to wait. So we set the date uh, to check in officially again at Easter this year, 2010. And we uh, checked in a couple times before then. Matt told me what was going on. Everything seemed to be going very nicely. And then at Easter, we had our final uh, meeting about this. And I was convinced that this was more than just a, a Gnostic flash. And I thought it would be time to make a public announcement and to confirm his awakening. Now, I want to say a few words about this. The only reason I confirm anybody's awakening is if they are willing to be teachers at the center, teaching basically the center practices. I would hope that all the teachers at the center will bring their own wisdom, their own particular twist to the teachings and make them their own and not just teach them by rote. But fundamentally, we teach inquiry, we teach meditation, we teach following precepts, and we teach devotion. And there are other teachers who don't teach those things, and there are other traditions who don't teach those things. Uh, Particularly today, there are people who don't see the value in meditation or following precepts and all that. And I suppose if you're a very advanced practitioner, they're not necessary. I always considered myself a middling practitioner. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about beginning, middling, and advanced. And uh, I thought I was probably more than just a very beginning. Well, in the beginning, I was a beginner, but I advanced to becoming a middling teacher, uh, a middling seeker. So our center here is really for people in that range, people who need these practices, as I needed them very much. So then if you are willing to teach that and to teach within the center format, then it's important that someone at the center confirm your awakening. Someone who's awakened confirms your awakening. And it's for your benefit. For those of you who come to the center 
as seekers, it's at least one check on saying, well, is this guy a charlatan? Has he just made this up? And so forth. So it's a little bit of the value of a tradition. One of the great values of a tradition is it's hard to be a real wacko within a tradition because the tradition tends to correct you or throw you out. So we don't really have much of a tradition here, but uh, from what tradition we have developing, this is, I think, a very important part of it. This does not mean that somebody who's come to the center and had an awakening didn't have a genuine awakening just because I didn't confirm their awakening. I make it a policy not to comment on anybody's awakening unless they are going to be a teacher at the center. So whether people have had awakenings or not, that's their business. Somebody who's had a genuine awakening does not need my confirmation. They don't need anybody's confirmation. So just because I'm silent on someone does not mean that that's an automatic disconfirmation. As far as we're concerned here, uh, I only speak about someone who is willing to be a teacher here. Now, I say willing to be a teacher because our tradition also says the way you become a teacher here is you have to be asked for teachings. You have to ask. I can ask him if he's willing to be a teacher, but it's up to you to ask him if you uh, want teachings from him. So tonight is our first opportunity. He's going to talk about mm, half an hour, maybe so, or whatever. Don't go over 45 minutes maximum. Well, no, once I get started. <laughs> and uh, then you'll have a chance to ask him questions. If you don't want him to be a teacher here, do not ask him any questions. Will be the end then we can all go. That's right. So, I, uh, without further ado, I turn this over to Matt. Okay. So I'm supposed to tell my story. You're supposed yeah. to tell your story. We okay. want a story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It better be a good one. <laughs> we should probably start with uh, my upbringing. I was not raised religious, so my parents, or my dad, I think, his term was he wanted to raise his son's dogma-free. So I was raised with just the dogma of our materialist culture and none of the overt Catholic guilt, just the subvert stuff that gets through. <laughs> and so I was pretty much a confirmed atheist by the time I was 15 or 16, you know, I hadn't really had any major exposure to any of the world's religious traditions, but, you know, that spirit stuff sounded like hogwash to me. It didn't make any sense. And um, then I think the first probably religious-oriented book I read was sophomore high school text, the, one of the Herman Hesse books, I think, probably Siddhartha or something like that. And that, wow, this guy seemed so at ease by the end of the novel. And um, something in there just clicked with me because I was, was not really at ease in any way at that time in my life. And, in fact, I would think that, to a large extent, I had really become overly intellectual as sort of a coping mechanism or something. And my dad is a professor at the university, and my mom could have been a professor. She did everything but the dissertation in an English PhD program. So I think I was a prisoner of my own mind. And 
one of the ways I found an outlet, so this is going to kind of be a story that goes like this because that's how life is. One of the ways I found an outlet for that was through the study of martial arts. So at about the age of 14, I started studying Asian martial arts. So this kind of confluence of being interested in Asian disciplines through the martial arts and getting interested in spirituality, beginning with the Hermann Hesse stuff, that was sort of the beginning of my investigation of spiritual teachings. And um, it's kind of going over my head how much to talk about ages 19 through 21. Um, before oh, well, <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> it was a pretty exper- let's just say it was a pretty experimental phase. <laughs> and uh, so I had a lot of powerful experiences during that time. Powerful spiritual experiences. I was no longer an atheist whatsoever. I was a confirmed seeker. I fully knew there was something greater. I had many very powerful visionary types of experiences, some of which are like um, like a major dream, you know, like one of the big dreams in your life where you kind of see sort of the, I don't know, some sort of an analogy or the archetype of your life, the, the kind of, you know, some sort of major way of, um, th- this life is kind of the flavor of it. But the thing about those types of experiences is that they're transitory. You know? So I would have these peak experiences, and then I would be back, and just a few days later, the pits of just horrendous suffering. Did you have a little help to have these experiences? Well, that's what I was... I wasn't sure if I wanted to completely... It's just a lewd. You can be honest. Yeah, there was chemical systems. One thing about me is, you know, whatever works. Like I said, I was not raised with the theology. And so pick what works, and for you, you know. And um, ultimately, I found that that type of practice... Although I think it's valid in shamanic cultures, the entheogen experience, I think it's it's a valid, um, at least initiatory experience. It's a way of parting the veil, and you can see beyond the story that you've been growing up with that seems to define your reality. It kind of shocks you out of that, and that can be very valuable. But it's not a very sophisticated way to train the mind, to train attention. So... I got back into the study of martial arts, and I studied with some teachers from a Chinese tradition, but it was a rather aggressive tradition. So it was very um, masculine, I guess you could say. In Chinese uh, theory, you'd say very yang. You know. And at the same time, I was studying Buddhism, I was studying counseling psychology, I was studying... I had gone through a period of of studying um, Western mysticism a little bit, mainly the stuff through the occult kind of circles, you know, the Crowley and those guys. I I read some of that stuff, but it didn't really capture me. So I really was attracted more to to the Buddhist types of things that I was able to get my hands on. And so I got back into the study of martial arts, and I was really driven to get good. I wanted to be really good. I wanted to be a teacher in this system. So I applied myself, you know. And that type of training works on the body. And through the discipline involved, it trains the mind that way. 
but I still hadn't really developed a consistent meditation practice until I was introduced to some Taoist practices. And so, along with my brother, he was living with my wife and I at the time, we discovered a teacher in Seattle who was a Zen master from a Korean Rinzai tradition. I can't remember what they call it in Korea, but Rinzai in Japan. And also a Taoist practitioner. And he taught a type of Taoist yoga. And this Taoist yoga really was attractive to me at the time. And it was similar to Indian Hatha Yoga in that you would hold specific positions, but it was very specific on the breath work. So there's a lot of breath control in this practice. And through the practice, I was able to start to let go of deeper levels of physical tension, and then what followed from that was mental tension, emotional tension. And I did that consistently for one year, before I met my current Taiji teacher, Taiji Qigong teacher, and started studying Chinese medicine at the same time. So this teacher, um, Harrison Moratz, he's still a teacher of mine, and uh, he's dedicated his life really to studying and teaching Taoist-style practices and Taoist-style martial arts, and um, took up the study of that system, which is this system here, and it was very, very useful to me. And so I've been doing that for about nine years. And the methods are working with the body and the breath as the, you could say, lever or the way to influence the mental state. But intention is primary. It's just that we use the body to guide the intention. So we use movement to guide the intention. So I studied with him for, um, I was living there for four years. But let me backtrack a little bit. So when I was about 19, in the height of my more experimental stage, I'd come across a book that had a really profound influence on me. And that book is Franklin Merrill Wolf's first book, Pathways Through to Space. And I don't know, for some reason that really clicked with me, maybe because my dad was a mathematician and Wolf was a mathematician, and he kind of had that real precise analytical mind you know he was very clear but at the same time he had this insight and these experiences that were as he says transrational they were very direct very powerful in any case it was to me like the first time i'd come across a westerner that seemed to have the highest wisdom and yet was still very much a westerner and something about that was um important to me i think because I never was interested in wearing Eastern robes or donning the cultural attire of Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, or anything, which some people find helpful, I think, you know. But it just seemed to be extra to me. And so after about four years of, uh, five years of practicing these Taoist practices, and through them uh, acquiring skill in meditation, I had the sort of feeling that you know, there's got to be something more. There's got to. This isn't quite it. You know, it's a very gradual path. It's cultivation. There's lots of things that happen along the way that tell you you're on the right track. But at the same time, it's still in time. There's somebody there doing something in time. And I had had insight experiences. I had had flashes, glimpses. I could I could understand the 
Madhyamaka philosophy. And so anyway, something got me interested in Dzogchen. And around the same time that I got interested in Dzogchen, I remembered Franklin Merrill Wolf, and I went back and read his first book, and then read his second book. And then I just thought to myself, there's got to be somebody. I mean, this guy lived forever. There's got to be somebody on the West Coast that was a student of this guy's. You know, there's got to be somebody. It took me a little while, but I, through Tom's website, tracked down Joel. And lo and behold, here he was, living in my hometown, and it was sort of a no-brainer. So I think I found him, and then that night I came upstairs. Romeo, we really need to move back to Eugene. <clears throat> so, you know, I had to come up with a lot of practical reasons, of course, to support that. And there were a lot of good practical reasons, so it was easy. But the real reason was because of Joel. Um, Where were you living? Seattle. And what had happened was I found the website... And I read through it a little bit, and I saw Joel's picture, and he's like, he knows. He knows what I want. <laughs> Funny, because it's... Anyway. But um, you know, then you know, I came down and visited with Joel and told him about my plans to move down and study here with him. And that was the beginning of my affiliation with the center, and that, I guess that was sort of when things got interesting. So what year was that? 2005 is when we moved down here. So... Then I'll talk about, I guess, my experiences with the center. But I've known a lot of people who in their 20s got interested in spirituality, but then practical life takes over. I never really lost the bug. And, you know, I don't know why. It's just I could never let it go. You know, even the career that I chose, Chinese medicine, I thought, well, you know, at least it's sort of applied holistic philosophy. It was still interesting to me. It could hold my attention long enough. And I was like, well, I, I wanted to have a family, we wanted to have kids, and I needed something practical that was helpful so that I could continue my seeking. So, should I take questions halfway through, or should I just keep talking? No, no, talking? no, no, no. If somebody had a question, if they, it's a quick practical question, like I asked, like, what year did you move down? Ask him, but Otherwise, we okay. want to get How old to are you? 34. Yeah. Well, I had a question about when Hiromi came in on the scene and how it altered your thinking. And, oh, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, because it's a big influence. Absolutely. So my wife Hiromi, I think everybody knows, she's from Japan. And we met in college in uh, 98. And we got together in 99. And we're coming up on our 10-year wedding anniversary in uh, June. She helped stabilize me. I think without her, I would have gone nuts or something. So she helped give me kind of a, a foundation in the world and something to work for practically. And she's always helped me to see when I was full of it, <laughs> basically. She's a bloodhound. This is actually a nickname her uncle gave her. I mean, she can, not only is her sense of smell really good, she's born near the metal dog. Metal's associated with the lungs, which is associated with the sense of smell. So anyway, Chinese theory, she's got a very a keen uh, sense of smell. The drawback to that is that she always has an opinion. But <laughs> So, but anyway, so she helped me make really important decisions. And one of the most important decisions was to leave the martial arts group that I had been studying with that was very aggressive. That it became clear that it was uh, no longer the right thing for me to be doing for a variety of reasons. And her influence was the deciding factor in that because it had become, it, it wasn't quite a cult, but it had some of that kind of control uh, going on. So, anyway. 
lots of ways, obviously, because our whole life is like our spiritual practice. I mean, that's the thing is it's not just when you're sitting, it's the whole thing. So, um, anyway. Joel said that, you know, his teachings or whatever are middling, but I personally think that the curriculum at the center is highly advanced. That may be just my current perspective. But, I mean, the Dzogchen teachings, which are working directly with awareness, regardless of the situation, used to be extremely secret. And we're lucky enough to have them spelled out for us very clearly. So, the first retreat I went on with the center was when I was in the Foundation Studies group. That spring retreat that a lot of you might have just been on, actually. My experience was one of the physical quality of extreme fear. In other words, my heart was literally pounding for at least two days. It might have been three days. It's hard to remember. But it was very intense. And there was a very intense heightened state of awareness that, well, anyway, I went to Joel and he said two things. The first thing is that, um, what's his name? founder of the Glupa tradition, uh, Tonkapa's story about the, the student in the back row that goes, <gasps> and have you heard, everybody heard this one? Tell it. So you want me to tell it? Well, no, I shouldn't ask. Does anybody want to hear the story? Uh, too late now. You're, you're done for. You're it's, a te- it's a teaching story. <laughs> All right, so Tonkapa was a, he found it. come here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> had my chance. Um, so Kappa was the founder of the Gelug tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, so one of the four main traditions. So he, and I think it was around the 14th century, 12th century, I don't know. Anyway, long time ago, big teacher was lecturing to a hall of, I don't know, I haven't read it, I've just heard Joel say it about ten times. I make I, up the details. I'm sure you know. Okay, so a thousand, a thousand monks or whatever, right? So there's a thousand, and, you know, they're raised in this tradition, so they've heard these teachings, and they're familiar with the concept of emptiness. And anyway, he's lecturing on emptiness, and one of the monks near the back goes, <gasps> and so Kappa says, ah, now you're getting it. So the, the idea is that fear is a good sign on the spiritual path. It's a sign that you're getting closer. So he told me that story, and then he said that fear is, in the Tibetan tradition, the wisdom energy of clarity. And that was actually really helpful, because if you don't react to fear, if you don't grasp or push it away, it's just a heightened energy in the body and mind. It makes the presence of awareness much sharper. So I... That was essentially the practice on that first retreat. And in the next few years, I really worked with attempting to integrate contemplation, the choiceless awareness style of contemplation, into my daily practice, my daily life. And it should be noted that my job is as an acupuncturist, so I'm trying to help people. I'm not just trying to help them, but I'm trying to understand how to help them. I'm trying to really... You know, really be with people, really meet with people. And so the combination of the style of contemplation practice and the daily work of having small children and Hiromi and the, <laughs> and the uh, patience, it was really powerful. I mean, it, it just was.
But um, I guess long story short, it got to the point where it became clear that there wasn't anything I could do, you know, in order to wake up. There's nothing you can do. But it has to be more important than anything else. I mean, there has to be nothing else. I mean, you have to see that there's nothing else. Yeah, it has to be clear. It's not, oh, I'm going to make this more important than anything else. It's just like everything else, it becomes empty. So I guess that's that aridity that they talk about. And Romy and the kids went away to Japan for three weeks, and I got to go on this retreat. And a couple days before, I was in my office, and I had gone up to Seattle, done some private lessons with my Taiji teacher, and he had given me some instructions that were actually very helpful for cultivating attention. And the type of practice we do, like I said, often involves the body. And so the nice thing about that and how I think it's compatible with these sort of uh, choices awareness style contemplation practices is that you're not trying to get to a state you know, of nirvikalpi samadhi, you know, some sort of a, a state where there's no objects. You work with the objects as they are, right, you know, in your ordinary state. And so anyway, he gave me some tips that were really helpful in working with attention. And because my life was simpler, because the family was gone, I was able to keep a, a rather high degree of mindfulness, you know, for me at the time, after that trip. And on the way down, I stopped at Powell's Bookstore, and I went to the spirituality section and um, found a Dzogchen book that I hadn't read before, Practice of the Day and the Night by Naokai Norbu. So, uh, you know, put that in my bag. Anyway, it was about 11.45 a.m. I had my last morning patient was reclined in the treatment room, resting with the needles. And so I had a few minutes before I had to send her on her way. And I looked at the book, and I opened it to some section, and it essentially just talked about non-dual presence. I don't remember the exact passage, how it went, but it was just a direct pointing instruction. And then I just kind of looked up, and something just fell away. It was very simple. It, it was... I can't describe what happened, other than that, at that point... Hmm, there's another piece. There's so many layers of things. The resistance just fell away. And there were some physical, energetic kinds of things associated with it, but nothing spectacular. Essentially, the, the mind just opened. And, you know, I had stuff to do. I mean, I actually was quite busy trying to get ready for the retreat. So, But I was, all of a sudden, there was no problem. Was this the retreat we just went on last fall? Yeah. Okay. So, went on the retreat... It was like a deepening into that. So it was the perfect timing, like Joel said. And there was a, um, so hard to talk about, a, a deepening into presence of awareness. And accompanying that, there was bliss, but unconditioned bliss, not and there were some things that happened on the retreat, too, as I kind of went through some layers of conditioning, because the initial insight, there's still stuff. You know, there's still conditioned responses to things. But as they're seen, they, they're seen, and then they either go away or they come back, but it doesn't matter. And in that retreat setting, you can really get into a very deep kind of um, 
state. One thing else I want to mention is that one of the things that I came to feel about my experience of awakening or my experience of greater insight into um, whatever this is, is that there is a, uh, what they call in the literature, a knot in the heart in the central channel. And I got to the point where I could feel that knot. I could feel that resistance. And this experience was, literally, it was the untangling of that. And it's that knot, it's that resistance that gives rise to our assumption of separation, our delusion of separation. And, I mean, this is talking about, like, psychic channels and stuff. So it's sort of not a something that our culture understands. But I actually, the experience of that, you know, sort of like a feeling, you know, in the body or a feeling in the center of your experience. And I think probably my sensitivity to that was brought on by the fact that I did a lot of energetic practices. So people might have the same experience as I did, but just experience it differently because their attention wasn't there or hadn't been trained that way or I don't know. Or it could just be a you know, part of the dream. But it seems to be something that's in the liter- literature. Yes? Since then, have you figured out the acupuncture point to get that knot out? <laughs> <laughs> right through the heart. Um, the acupuncture point to unravel the heart knot. We're going to be winding up. Yeah. Yes, but unfortunately, it kills the patient. <laughs> Literally? <laughs> That's a risk you have to take. <laughs> um, what was I? So anyway, so now that it's like awareness is not really restricted that way anymore. I mean, it doesn't mean that emotions don't come up, but they're just not. They're not held onto. They just you know, they come and they go. Um, what else was there? Okay, so there was an experience um, when I was on the retreat where it really just kind of came down. And I was walking through the woods there on Cloud Mountain. Uh, There's just a point where the separation, the experience of any difference was just completely gone. It was just completely obliterated. And the sense was that I could just... I didn't used to understand the stories of some types of spiritual practitioners who would just go away. But I totally understood it now. I mean, it just totally makes sense. It's such a natural thing to do. It's just completely merge back. But then there was like, well, you know, that whole Bodhisattva vow thing, you know, you should probably hang around. (laughs) There's work to do. (laughs) That's the main gist of it. Okay, so we do have questions here. Uh, you're sunk. You're finished. Okay. Matt, since you mentioned the Bodhisattva vow, I, I wondered, um, now that you're sort of part of all of us and everything, we're the sort of organic wholeness. Or what do you mean now that? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Now that I realize that, yeah, I that there's no separation? But anyway, what I wanted to ask is, what, what is your sense of will or volition or intention, especially with regard to the Buddhist Well, These are going to be tricky questions, aren't they? <laughs> I think it is extremely important to try as hard as you can to do the most good that you can. And I think that that aligns you with the 
will that isn't yours. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Pat. Um, when you said that there's nothing you can do, well, on the last retreat we were talking about attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of a, I know that words are not effective in kind of thing you're talking about because no words can express it, but would it be knowing that, was that kind of a surrender? You said you said before you, before everything fell away, there's nothing you could do. There's, can't, there's nothing I can do. I've done it, everything, there's nothing else you can do. Was that kind of a surrender? I think that's what Joel means when he talks about surrender in a sense. Um, you know, it's also, I think, more specifically he speaks of uh, kenosis, which is sort of the um, the state of no self prior to realization. Or they also talk about the um, long dark night of the soul. Or Yeah, it's, it's a type of surrender. You get surrendered. You know, you're trying as hard as you can. And there's n- well, there's just... You used to be a nurse, right? You ever work like a double, and at the end, you know, or maybe a few of them, like you maybe had like three weeks where you just worked as hard as you could, and at the end of it, you came home, and you could barely remember what to do. You're so exhausted. Have you ever had a day like that? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like that, except it's deeper. It's not just physical. Does that make sense? You're just, you're just spent. But you know that giving up is just another game. You're stuck. It's like being out on the limb thing, you know. Steve. Yeah. Um, There's people in the back. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, can we turn the lights up? I can't. It's because the, it's dark back there, and I don't. S- if you can stand up, that'd be cool. All right. <laughs> uh, Steve. Um, you know, I noticed seemed a little different on the last retreat. Maybe it's just because we sat there doing the dishes together every evening after dinner. And I it was a lot of fun. <laughs> no, you seem a little more sparkly than I had thought. Anyway, um, <laughs> non-duality, awareness and realization of that, is that present? Did you understand it, or did you really experience that before your clarifying moment that you had right before the retreat? Okay, so did I... This non-duality. Oh, well, what do you mean by non-duality? What does well, that mean that to you? Well, that there was no separate me. You know, there was no... Oh, no, that doesn't really make sense to the ego. So as long as you're identifying with thoughts, then that's not going to... In fact, it's going to probably make resistance come up. Yeah, I mean, where were you in that progress before, you know... Annoyed that I was resisting it? <laughs> that's where you were? Yeah, okay. So you saw that. You saw your resistance. Sure. <laughs> yes. I think you have to see your resistance. I mean, that's part of the tension becoming more subtle. You start to see when you're resisting and go, God, why am I still resisting? Yeah. Right, Doc? I understand that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it just magically... Everything's magical. Okay, Mike. Oh, Abdullah? You mentioned, like, uh, at the end there was a snipe. Do you say it your heart? Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering if you're familiar with uh, Ken Wilber, No Boundary. Yeah, I read it, and then I was supposed to read it again in but Fred's the class end, recently. Again, he, speak, he said after that there was no separation. Because Ken Wilber, at the end, he speaks of attention. Then he terms it the act, which is the last tension. He says, 
I'm wondering if it's the same thing. Well, I think that's what he means. I mean, there's as many ways of talking about it as you want there to be. Or as you can come up with, you know. But yeah, my understanding is the, the last boundary is the subject-object distinction. And that's what's causing all the problems. I mean, well, that's what's causing the suffering. There's still problems. Actually, my life has been more busy the past couple of months than it's ever been in my life. But, you know, I don't mind it. It's okay. It's interesting. You know, and I think a lot of us, we find our problems interesting most of the time. It's just then there's that part of the time that we let them get to us, and it's because we take them to be real. Maura? I may have missed this, and you may have said something about it, so you might have to remind me, but you know, it seems like there's a lot of accounts of awakening where there's you know, the two stages, or two separate realizations of no I and then no other. Mm-hmm. Did you talk? Did I miss that? Oh, do I anything about that? Um, They're two sides of the same coin. So I think it's possible to have maybe a glimpse into one part of it, but if you don't see both, then it's not actually full realization. I mean, that would be my intellectual answer because it wasn't really part of my experience. But I'll try to answer it on that level if that's okay. And I think that it's... um, comes out of the types of meditation practices that a lot of the traditions used, which were trying to cultivate a state of consciousness with no subject or object, which in the Sanskrit is the nirvikalpi samadhi. And in that type of practice, it's possible to maybe have a very strong insight into the fact that you don't exist, because you know you could go into a state where you don't exist, but then you come back and then there's all these people, and the insight isn't full because there's still this appearance of the world that you come back to. And the types of practices that we do is more like Zen or Dzogchen. We're trying to like just look right through it in ordinary experience, ordinary state. So my feeling is that it would be less likely in this type of practice to have that one-sided realization. But I could be wrong. I don't know. That's an intellectual answer, though. Are you saying that for you that was a simultaneous? Yeah, I mean, it's just, yes, absolutely, simultaneous. Yes, I don't remember your name. Christy. Christy. Well, so that makes me wonder, I mean, this might seem silly, but how did you go back to work? Um, How did I go back to work? Yeah, I mean, you had somebody with a needle in in her. Oh, because it's so ordinary. It's so ordinary. That's why. I was just, see, what happened was the suffering fell away, you know, and then I went on retreat and the state deepened. But... Realization isn't dependent on a state. It's just non-grasping. It's actually, you are no longer capable of grasping. So, to finish that, you had no trouble going back to the patient and taking... No, it was quite a lot of fun. I was all of a sudden in such a great mood, you know. (laughs) Fortunately for the patient. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not about state. I mean, I've been in states where you wouldn't want me near a patient. Sure, I'm like, whoa, you know, way high or something. But it's not like that. You know, that's not what realization. Yeah. Matt, you recently had a close encounter with death uh, when you were served the nuts right. at the your vaca- during your vacation, and because you had this severe allergic reaction, 
um, you, the way I understood it from the stories is, I mean, you were close to dying. We kind of had that fear. I mean, it could have been that I would have just passed out and they would have put me on ID flus or something. Who knows? But, right. And, and that was before this, right? No, this was after. The, ex- the nuts was after. The awakening was after this. No, the awakening was before, yes. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, well never mind. <laughs> don't, don't well, try that, My question is going to be like, my well, no, even better. Not recommended. Better. My question is even better. I mean, what... Okay. It was very interesting. So yeah, how tell us about that. Well, she I, was having a really hard time. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, yeah, story <laughs> And I associate a lot of fear and tension with this, but what was your experience? Uh, it was... Um, Could you back it up and just... Tell about the nuts? Details about yeah. whatever you're talking about. <laughs> I had a... This was my birthday weekend, right? Anyway, my parents watched their kids. We got to go to Brighton Bush for one night. And they... Don't label the ingredients in their food, or at least they weren't that weekend. And um, I'm allergic to nuts. I should have been more careful. Had some tofu uh, breakfast sausage that happened to be half tofu, half hazelnut paste. Every single meal you got we don't need to go into all of the how horrible brightness is. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I got really sick, so I'm allergic to nuts. I mean, I, I was really sick. I, I still need to get an EpiPen. I need, anyway, um, I'm sort of cheap. And so I, I got really sick. And whole body hives, and then I went into shock, and she was driving us home, and I started to kind of, I started to kind of pass out in the car, you know. I'd already completely thrown up, you know, and I was in shock. We had wool blankets, and my dad's V8. Dodge Dakota pickup truck cranked on high with the heat, and I was still shivering. And I started to nod off, and you know, I was like trying to stay conscious mm-hmm. because I didn't think that was probably a good thing to, you know, not a good way to go, mm-hmm. not a useful way. So anyway, then I threw up, and then I was better. So. so what was your experience? Did you not experience suffering, or did you not experience resistance to that situation? I just let it happen. You know, Were you just you scared of dying. No, I'm not scared of dying. The, what kept coming to my mind was, ah, my daughter. You know, she needs a dad around, so I got to try to stay around here, whatever it is. So that was the main thing. But it was actually interesting to watch. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it was actually interesting to see what happened when the body really starts shutting down. Mm-hmm. What would you see? Well, you just start going into the light. Yeah. <laughs> Same place you go when you go to sleep, except that I was able to be more conscious. Sort of an unusual experience. If I could add to that, that I've been with him long enough to be able to tell when he's in that reaction phase that all he wants is to be left alone, and he'll be the like world's like worst person to be with grouch, crab, you know, just all those adjectives, you could just put that and you just don't want to be near him, although he needs help, but this was the worst uh, reaction I ever seen on him, and uh, he wasn't, he was actually cheerful, and it was pretty hard to watch him scratching and going like animals, but he was, he wasn't obnoxious. <laughs>
She recommends it to all you husbands. Joel's retreats are good for your marriage. No. I'm just. My question is to you. What's your experience been like over the last six months living with this guy? It's weird. Um, it's sort of like standing on like bottomless, bottomless, or some. It's. I feel like I'm not on the solid ground in a way because it's different. The normal grasping of fighting back faith doesn't really happen. Um, so it's like, oh, it's, it's kind of different. And then, yeah, it doesn't really happen, and it's been very helpful, especially with kids. Um, and less complaints, and then he actually does the dishes, happily does it without any complaints. Like, but that was the best part of this whole thing. <laughs> Get your husband's enlightened. <laughs> Fixes all that. But, but the whole the nut reaction experience was very unique because normally it's very difficult to be with him because he's suffering clearly and in pain and yet there's nothing you can do and here he's so uncomfortable but not miserable he's sort of weird like the body's just freaking out body's freaking out but his spirit was kind of like well i'm sort of in bliss and like, yeah, I could sort of see that, but it was very difficult to, to understand. But I was grateful because we were walking in the woods, and, and he was sort of cheerful. I was the one kind of, like, stuck in the past experiences. So that kind of confirmed, like, oh, there is some difference here. Because I did follow Joel's advice. I didn't talk about it my experience, but I did tell him Romy, and I, I talked to Tom Fred. Yes? Okay, well, uh, Pat, you answered this for Pat a little bit, or actually you gave a pretty good answer, it, um, and it's about surrender, and I was just wondering if you would characterize the moment of awakening that you had as surrender without trying to surrender you were just surrendered yeah I mean you know you start trying to label these things I, yeah. I this is what I would say I think the Joel's teachings are remarkably sophisticated and that I think that he for our culture explains things more clearly than most and so I'd say just keep going back to the book and the practices. I think that they're really, really good ones. So in the context of his language, yeah, it's a, it was surrender. More specifically, it had to do with the last two stages of the, of the path. Kenosis. Kenosis. Which has to do with surrender. Did you have any premonition that you were getting closer? No, but I, I should say that I, I did have some 
earlier in my life, I had some experiences, visions that made me think that this was going to happen. How surprised are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, does you think it was possible for you? That seems to be a stumbling block for me that I don't believe in my heart that I have the capacity. I think that's personality. What was the question? Uh, she said that, um, did I believe that it was possible for me? Uh, that she thinks that's a problem for her, that she doesn't believe it's possible for her. And I think confidence is important. But I think that overconfidence is a barrier. Right? And I think that a lot of it has to do with personality and, and how we were raised. You know? And I was, the, I, yes, I was raised to believe that I could do whatever I wanted to do. You know, and being the first son and also my personality just being really driven and focused and doing whatever I want and doing well at that. So that probably is one reason why I've done things maybe earlier in my life than some people, is that personality thing. But I think that it's more important to investigate what is it inside of that feeling of not feeling in your heart that it's possible for you. Look at what is inside that feeling. If that's something that keeps arising for you, look at it. Don't just start telling stories about it, but you know, actually look at that feeling. Use it as the stepping stone for self-examination. It doesn't really matter what your stories are. right? All that matters is that you're looking at them. He's already a good teacher. My experience on the retreat was... I guess what I wanted or expected was that I would start at a sort of like more active mind place and over the course of the retreat slowly and gradually and progressively get deeper and deeper and more concentrated, etc. But that wasn't my experience. My experience was that I would get deep and then I would pop out of it and then I kind of get down it. It, it was more like up and down. Um, and I was wondering if, well, about your experience, but I, I was wondering if my experience will be that over the course of this, that, that that experience of the retreat is sort of a microcosm of the whole path. It's like that you don't just keep going down gradually until you arrive. It's like sort of like this up and down. It might, it might be sloping down gently, but it's it's always up and down. And I was wondering if your experience was anything like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm trying to think how to be useful. I've had that experience. You know, when I was talking about when I was younger and I was had blissful experiences, I mean, I'm talking about crazy out there, and then crashing depression, right? I think that it's probably true that sort of common for people to have, you know, swings like that, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the answer to your question is, you know, thinking about it, it doesn't matter. But which retreat are you interested about? Which retreat of mine? This last no, one? No, I'm or asking either? about your retreat. I was oh. just thinking that, yeah. that this experience that I had on retreat was sort of like a microcosm right. of the larger path. Right. That, you know, might I expect this kind of trajectory to last for, you know, years, kind of. <laughs> and when will you get enlightened? I have no idea. Good answer. Yeah. Um, your image of the resistance just untangling and dissolving was powerful, and I appreciated that. Um, resistance for me, I mean, resistance can be um, a, a helpful tool in my life. Um, 
if I'm having resistance to something, it can be a red flag that that situation or circumstance that I'm in, whether it's an intimate relationship or, um, uh, you know, a job that's just not healthy for me, or um, even something as simple as uh, uh, your physical dwelling. Resistance can key you into the... Uh, that maybe that circumstance isn't good for you, mm -hmm. and it's time to move on. It's time to break up. It's time to buy a bigger house. It's time to mm -hmm. um, quit the job and find something else. But if self, if um, I know that, I mean, the teaching, our suffering is always self-generating. So, uh, but how do I put this now? With without Resistance, what do you use as your guide, as your barometer to know, okay, it's time to get out of this situation, as opposed to um, staying in it and just watching the suffering, watching the emotions, watching the resistance. Time as soon as there's faith. a decision to make, make the right decision. As soon as there's a decision. As soon as there's a decision to make, make the right decision. Then you don't have to go, wow. oh, I think I should make a decision. I'm suffering. As soon as there's a decision to make, make the right decision. And if it was the wrong decision, then make the right decision the next time. Because yeah, that's what self-responsibility self-respons comes down to, according to Joel's book, that you have a choice. Uh, yeah, it's a res responsibility. Um, but you have a choice. So It doesn't become resistance until you're grasping there. So mm -hmm. what we want is we want our attention to sink a little deeper mm -hmm. so that we're a little more sensitive to the resistance. And, it, and I'm not saying that you, the practice is going to eliminate your resistance, but I'm going to interject. This is a complicated I question. I think it's a semantical question, actually, and we don't have uh, language sensitive enough to pick up the difference. But resistance, when we normally talk about it in a spiritual context as the cause of suffering, it's resisting what is. And if you might want to put it, it's resisting what is almost inevitable. In a certain sense, you don't have a choice about it. So that resistance is always going to cause suffering. And that resistance is always futile. There's another situation where it's not so much resistance, it's actually wisdom. It's alarm bell that goes off and says, get out of here. And so you do it. There's no resistance. Unless you're caught and your heart is saying, get out of here. And, you know, your, I don't know, your parents are saying, oh, no, you should stay. And your spouse is saying, oh, it's a good job. You might not get a better job. And so there's a conflict. One part of you is saying, get out of here. The other part is saying, no, you should stay. Now you have a problem. Now you do have resistance. But the actual feeling that I should leave or I should stay, either case, if it's clean, if it's pure, then you just do it. Just like Matt was trying to say. Here's the decision. It's time for decision. Make the decision. Uh, sometimes you don't know yet. But that isn't necessarily suffering. It's, you can feel something developing, and then you wait, and you listen, and when your heart says, go for it or go away from it, you just do it. Okay. Is that helpful? Yeah.
Okay, it's actually pretty good timing here. It's nine. Does somebody have a burning question that they need answered before we leave? Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Thanks Matt. Thank you. Thank you.